Well, welcome once again to the Generation V podcast. It is so good to have you with us. Uh, we are continuing our series on stewarding our faith. But joining me today, uh, we have uh, Marcus again. How are you? Hello. Very good. No funny intro this time. We kicked Ollie off of the podcast promptly. Yeah, he's, he's banned. He's gone. He's never coming back. And Georgie, how are you doing? Hello. I'm doing pretty good. Wonderful. How have your weeks been? Oh, my week has been excellent. My week has also been pretty good. I injured myself a little bit at PE yesterday. Oh, no. We were playing hockey and it got a little violent and my friends and I clashed into each other and whacked my knee onto a basketball court and have a solid bruise. Wow. Yeah, I can see that bruise. That's pretty substantial. Mm, it's a pretty bad one, guys. I would go so far as to say that Z was also partly responsible yes, for that. Yes, Z also crashed into me yesterday. So oh, no. that could also mm. be yeah. the reason I have a bruise. What about you, Marcus? First degree Georgie side. T- tell me a little bit about all of the music stuff you're working on. The music stuff I'm working on? Yeah, all oh, of your boy. concurrent um, music projects. Yes, uh, several of them. I counted about eight, like individual music projects that are ranging from writing all the little interludes for this podcast. Very cool. Thank you for that. Exalting myself. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, To Battle of the Bands, which is, uh, I talked about that last week, which is going to be, which is going to be a ball. Uh, and did I hear? Is it your is it your house leader that's leaving, and you're writing a farewell song for them? Oh yeah. Well, uh, hopefully, hopefully he's not listening to this podcast because it's a surprise for him. But uh, my housemaster's leaving, and um, we we've written a song. And we're getting everyone to collaborate and do like saxophone solos, violin solos, rap solos. It's wow. gonna be it's gonna be a ball. That sounds like a musical smorgasbord. That's right. <laughs> Why don't you guys tell me something about yourself that maybe not everyone knows? Some people will know this, but not everyone. I have three siblings, and I am, in fact, the youngest. It can be a bit hectic sometimes. I can imagine. Ar- arguing is common. But yeah, I, I, lo- I enjoy being the youngest. It's pretty fun. You get to hang out with all your siblings. That's good. That's good. What about you, Marcus? I'm going to take this one step further. I have 14 and a half cousins. <laughs> 14 and, 14 and, a, half and cousins. a half cousins. That's right. Why half? Uh, one of my cousins has a half sister. I consider her a half cousin. Okay. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Big, big old family. Yeah. Like I said, we're looking at stewarding our faith again, taking a look at the foundations of who we are and what it means to be Christian. Um, and this episode, we're looking at what Jesus taught about the ethics of the kingdom. Actually, how we're supposed to behave now that Jesus is our king and that we're living in this, this place that he's prepared for us. Would one of you guys like to pray? I will pray for us. Dear God, thank you that we have this opportunity to come here and learn and dive right into the Bible and your word. And thank you that we can all come here and talk about this together, discuss it, unpack it, and share it with the world. In your name, amen. 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 Thank you. We're diving back into Luke's gospel. And last week... Or, or last episode, rather, we were looking at the kind of right near the end of this center block of Jesus' ministry. But now we're going kind of back closer to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, he's just kind of picked out some of his disciples and he takes them to a, a plain or a flat space and he begins teaching them. So why don't we read? This is from Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And then Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great multitude 
of the people from Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled by unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And he raised his eyes toward his disciples and began saying, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when the people hate you, when and when they ex- exclude you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and jump for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For their fathers used to treat the prophets the same way. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who are abusive to you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat people with the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged, and do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. Now he also spoke a parable to them. A person who is blind cannot guide another who is blind, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above the teacher, but everyone, when he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For there is no good tree that bears bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree that bears good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For people do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. 
The person out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when there was a flood, the river burst against that house, and yet it could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the river burst against it, and it immediately collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Mm. Thank you, Marcus. That was a bit of a marathon. So this this passage of Scripture, it's often called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel, but it parallels very closely with what's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. You can find that starting from Matthew chapter 5. And here, Jesus is telling us what it means to live in God's kingdom and, and how we, we should and can behave in God's kingdom. You often hear things talked about kind of like, it doesn't matter what you do, God will always forgive you and you, you, you can enter into the kingdom of God. Or for example, like, like there's nothing that you can do to earn your, your way into God's grace. But here, Jesus is talking about a whole bunch of things that he wants us to do. Like how, how do we put those two things together? And so I want to talk about the, the, the constant story of grace uh, and then law in the Bible. First of all, you guys know the, the law in the Old Testament. There's like a whole bunch of them. We've actually spoken about this a bit before. The Torah. Yeah, the Torah. Yeah, the um, Specifically the third, fourth, and fifth book. Uh, yes. Yep. Um, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Yes, but Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I thought Deuteronomy was the second one because Jew means two. Uh, no, Deuteronomy is um, the second law, and that's because Moses is giving all of the laws that he gave before a second time to a new generation. Ah, oh, that explains it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so there's the law in the Old Testament, and it's, it's detailed, right? Like, we think that this is detailed. The law in the Old Testament is really detailed. There's hundreds of laws from things about what exactly is supposed to happen when oxes gore people all the way through to how you're supposed to deal with skin diseases that we've heard about a bit before and all of those kind of things. It's detailed. And a lot of times the law kind of gets set in opposition to what Jesus is doing uh, as he's going around. Because in some senses, the Pharisees are kind of standing in as representatives of the law because that's where their focus was. They were really focused on the law and how to follow the law. And Jesus is coming oftentimes rebuking the Pharisees for what they're doing in following the law. And so sometimes as Christians, we can kind of get the impression that the law is bad. And that's definitely not it. God gave the law to his people and he gave it to them and it was good. It served a really good, solid, strong purpose. It was, it was good for the people. And so if, if in any kind of theology or understanding of the Bible, you ever get to the point where you're like, the law is bad, something has gone wrong. So if the law is not bad or wrong, 
then how do we understand what it is and why it's good? And I think the really important thing there is the relationship that grace has with the law. So we often think about God's grace and like, what's the first thing that we think of in terms of God's grace? Maybe something about like Jesus on the cross dying for our sins. But the, the Israelites had a picture of God's grace as well. They had a really important picture of God's grace. And that was the story of the Exodus when they got to walk free out of Egypt, not because of anything that they did, but purely because of what God did for them. That is an incredible picture of God's grace. And that is oftentimes the foundation behind these laws. So we have this law, which is from Deuteronomy, and it's talking about the law of the Sabbath, which is like, you know, on the seventh day of the week, you're supposed to rest um, from all your work. And, and let's hear, like, what is the reason that God gives why they should obey this law? This is from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Keep the Sabbath day to treat it as holy as the Lord your God commanded you. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of the Lord your God. You shall not do any work that day, you or your son or your daughter or your male slave or your female slave or your ox, your donkey or any of your cattle or your resident who stays with you, so that your male slave and your female slave may rest as well as you. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and, out, and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to celebrate the Sabbath day. English comprehension quiz. What is the reason that God gives them for celebrating the Sabbath? Because the, the rest of the week is all labor and toil. And, yeah. he, and well... The first part of it is practicality to rest for a day. Yep. But then the other thing is to maintain the the holiness of resting in between. Because, yeah. Be, that is following in the example of God, especially with um, Genesis. Yeah. When yeah. he when he did the very same yeah. thing on the seventh day, resting, um, whether that's a literal day or not. Because that that the that theme of having some kind of gap or some kind of um, stopping every seven cycles, yeah, or every every seven intervals, uh, reoccurs all the time in the Bible. Not yeah. not just talking about like the week, but talking about um, years, the Sabbath year, the Sabbath the year, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, that's 100% true. And actually, the reason that is the reason that God gives for the Sabbath when he first gives them that law in Exodus. Uh, so you can read about that in Exodus chapter 20. He says, rest because in six days God created the earth and on the seventh day he rested. But God, in the second giving of the law, because we're reading from Deuteronomy here, he gives a different reason. And it's in, it's in verse 15 here. What is the reason? Because they were once slaves in Egypt. And now they're him. free. Yeah. So th this is a this is symbolic of their freedom. Yeah. They're supposed to rest as yep. a response to God's grace. Uh, this is going to be a theme that shows up all the way through the giving of the law. So all the way through those three books that Marcus was talking about, you have the, uh, like, do this thing that I'm asking you to do because I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. 
That's the reason that he gives is because of my grace, do this thing. Let's, let's kind of ask the question, if that's the reason why Israel is supposed to do all these things that God is asking them to do, what does that mean for the people? Can they earn the rewards of like God's grace or can they even like forfeit God's grace by doing the things that they're doing? Uh, is there, is there something that an Israelite can do that will make God bring them up out of Egypt? Ab- no, ab- absolutely not. Is there something that an Israel Israelite can do that can stop God from bringing them up out of Egypt? Mm, that can stop him from doing that it. Can stop or like well, that, that would make him choose not to bring them up out of Egypt. Well, probably just their own will not to leave Egypt. Yeah. That that would that would be literally yeah. the only thing if they said yeah. um if they said oh, no we're not going to we don't want to go out of Egypt and they physically don't uh follow him in yeah. going out of Egypt. Yeah. At this point when they're receiving this law they're already out of Egypt. It's too late for them to earn or to 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 forfeit God's grace because it's already happened. They've already received God's grace. And I think that that's so important to understanding how the law works. The law isn't trying to earn something by doing things. The law isn't trying to trying to to compel God to do good things for them. God has already done good things for them and obeying the law is the people's response to God's grace. George, you're giving me a funny look. Yeah, it's just interesting, I feel like. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's all I have to say. <laughs> With the Sabbath, I just, like, it's a time to reflect on what God has done for you and also a time of rest. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what I wrote down. Mm-hmm. And, like, reflect on the fact that God saved them. Yeah. It, make, yeah. it makes sense and it is a very... um. It's a very good exercise in remembering and maintaining that grace. Uh, that that they're out of Egypt, yeah. So they don't they don't need to be saved from that. But there there's still a sense that they need to be saved from themselves. Yeah. So that yeah. Mm, so that is that is just like a mini embodiment of just just as um, Jesus doing the forty days and the forty nights was like a little version a mini version of the 40 years in the desert um he's embodying that to show that he can do that and maintain his goodness and they could have done that and maintain their goodness and this is showing that they have received the grace from god just as back in the day they received the grace from god parallels once again uh, typology, the magic mm, word. Typology. There you go. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And also, I feel like it's a, the, the rest day is like an opportunity to like stay on track with God mm. as well. Just yeah. like not to, I guess, like lose yourself with, in your world and consume mm. yourself with like your own views. It makes so sense. much sense because, because you're, you're not, you're not ingrained in the, the earthly things, um, mm. seven days a week, you have a little bit of time to readjust. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot that we could learn from the Sabbath. I think I think a wise God would truly want just a little bit of time out of your schedule regularly to get you to focus on Him. So if if the law is not wrong and following the law is not bad, then what is it that the Pharisees are actually doing wrong? Like why, why is how they're behaving a problem? And that is where we come to this theme. Marcus, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this. Yeah. Uh, this is what I was talking about a lot last episode. It is. But this is like, this is the most important thing. That underneath the law, there lies something more important than that. Uh, and I'm going to read a passage about this, which is from uh, Micah 6, verses 6 to 8. Uh, this passage might be familiar to you, but I'm just going to make sure that we kind of understand it in its context. So what's happening in Micah Micah 6 is that there are these people who are coming to God and they have some uh, they have some complaints. Like, God, what do you want us to do? Like, what do you want from me? Is, is what the people are saying to God. And let's listen to how God responds. So, so the people first. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yielding calves, does the Lord take pleasure in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give him my firstborn for my wrongdoings, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, mortal one, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Here you go. Micah 6, 6 to 8. Yeah. This is um, exactly what I've uh, been talking about, isn't it? Yes. Coming to the Lord with nothing to offer him because nothing brings you back to that state of perfection. No no sacrifice, no no amount of law obedience is going to be enough for God. What he desires is that you love him and that you love justice. Mm. We can see why the law is good, but but when we consider this, we realize the central message is not about the law being good. It's about why the law doesn't make you good, doesn't make mm. you mm. adequate enough. Yeah. And so, okay, so we've established this, this kind of pattern where we have obedience, uh, sorry, grace first, followed by God giving the law and, and asking for, for obedience. And so how do we see that show up in our sermon on the plane, in the passage we read today? And I think that the, the the place to look is right at the start of the passage in this section that's often called the Beatitudes. And it's full of Jesus saying, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. God is saying, you guys are so blessed. You guys are, are receiving God's blessing because the kingdom of God, it's coming for you guys. I underline, shall I give him my firstborn for my all my wrongdoings? And the people, is it the people that are complaining? Yeah, the people. Okay. The people are like, like, what can I do for forgiveness and for obedience? And, you know, they're like pleading to God, like all the things that they can do. And I thought that the fact that they said, like, should I give him my firstborn was just really stood out to me, if mm. that makes sense. Like, I yeah. thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Like, a, they're willing to give their firstborn child just for obedience and forgiveness from God. It's a really, it's a double-edged sword, right? Mm. Because on the one hand, God 
makes it very clear that he hates child sacrifice, right? Like they're, they're doing that out in the nations around Israel and God is like, that is not okay. Mm -hmm. You are not to sacrifice humans, let alone your own children. But nevertheless, some of Israel's kings sacrifice their children and it goes very poorly. That's one of the darkest days in Israel's history. But the other thing that's going on is that who ultimately is going to die for our sins to save all of us? It's going to be God's own firstborn. Okay, so let's dive a little deeper into, into these, these blessed are you statements. A really like a simple grammatical thing to notice is that Jesus is not saying, I am blessing you or bless you. No, he's, he's not. He's saying, yeah. blessed are you. He's not talking about something that's going to happen or he's not declaring that he's going to do something. What he's saying is, you are already being blessed. This is called uh, perfect present tense, where it's talking about a, a completed action in the present tense. Language lesson. Yeah. Queenie Greek. Yeah. Uh, blessed are you. And so what he's saying is he's not, he's not doing something new. What he's, he's doing is he's revealing something that's already happening. So you people, the poor people, you are already blessed. Beatitudes. This this kind of this setup where they talk about uh, people being blessed. It's not a um, Jesus is not innovating a new genre. Uh, this is something that actually existed out there in other writings and texts in and around Jesus' day and time. Uh, do you guys know about the the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, they were this set of really ancient Jewish manuscripts found just outside Jerusalem. Uh, in that, the one in the cave? cave. Yeah. yeah, the one the, in the cave. The, uh, the boy just uh, chucked a rock in there for wh whatever reason, and he smashed some pottery, but he feels good about that now. Uh, and then they found all these artifacts. Mm, yeah, in particular, they found a huge quantity of scrolls of the Jewish Bible. Uh, those are the oldest like texts that we have of the Jewish Bible, and some of them aren't complete, but some of them are. For example, we have all of the book of Isaiah, the whole thing, which is really special. But we also have some other writings that the community produced themselves. And this is one of them. It's called the uh, the Wisdom of Ben Sirach, is what this text is called. And in there, there's, there's a section of Beatitudes. The actual text itself is like a little fragmented and incomplete. So this is our, our best putting together of, of what... Uh, what Ben Sirach said in his in his Beatitudes. Uh, Georgie, do you want to read this for us? I'd love to. With nine thoughts I have gladdened my heart, and a tenth I shall tell with my tongue. A man rejoicing in his children, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Happy is he who lives with an intelligent wife, and he who has not made a slip with his tongue, and he who has not served a man inferior to him. Happy is he who has gained good sense, and he who speaks attentive listeners. How great is he who has gained wisdom, but there is no one superior to him who fears the Lord. Mm. Okay. So there's some obvious connections, right? He's talking about the people who are kind of living the good life. And Jesus is also kind of talking about that. But there's also some very obvious differences. 
between what Ben Sirach has to say and what Jesus has to say. Like in Jesus's story, the people that are blessed are the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the ones who people hate. But in Ben Sirach's text, the people that are blessed are, you know, a man who's happy because of his children, someone whose foes fall before them. Mm. Mm. Someone who has attentive listeners. There's a, there's a little more going on here. So, so this example of being blessed is the more obvious one of having earthly possessions that you ought to be happy about, that you ought to be thankful for and everything. And that, make, that makes perfect sense. We, everyone experiences that. But what Jesus is doing here in the other one is he's going a step deeper. And he's saying, even when you don't have those things, when, when you are possessionless, that's a word, you are actually blessed and you don't know it because those things that you lack, you will get more than you expect with yeah. heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Grace. There you As go. The kingdom of An God amazing comes. thing. Ben Sirach is talking about people who you could look at and say, oh, that person's blessed. Blessed by earthly standards and blessed by God's standards. Yeah. That person is blessed. The people who Jesus is talking about are not obviously blessed. Mm -hmm. But these are the people to whom the kingdom of God is good news. That's right. The kingdom of God is good news to the people who are poor. The kingdom of God is good news to the people who are hungry. Yeah, giving a hamburger to someone who's full is not uh, very good news. Giving a hamburger to someone who is ravenous is pretty darn good news. Yeah. This is Jesus continuing this theme of the upside down kingdom. The people who you who you wouldn't expect to be entering into the kingdom of God, the people who you wouldn't expect to have blessing, those are exactly the people that Jesus is blessing. They're exactly the people that Jesus is is pouring out his grace on. And so this is the grace that Jesus leads off his message with. <laughs> This grace is paired with a series of woes. Now, just the this word woe, uh, so let me read one, for example. Uh, but woe to you who are rich. Woe meaning warning. Look out, be careful. Yeah. It, so it's not saying cursed are you no it's not rich. It's saying look out because when you have all these possessions... It's going to be pretty risky, and and you might find it quite difficult to give them up. Yeah, we heard about that last episode. We definitely did. Yeah, but he also isn't mm. saying, "I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna." That's right. Do something to you. Exactly. He's not saying you're doomed. He's saying you are a perfect candidate for finding this kind of thing hard. Yeah. Whereas someone who doesn't have anything is not going to find it yeah. hard to accept the kingdom and accept all these yeah. good things. We also shouldn't imagine Jesus kind of jumping about with joy as he's pronouncing these woes. I think there's a really important sense in which the woes are not something that Jesus enjoys saying. In other, pl- in other places in the text, he'll pronounce woes over things that Jesus clearly loves, like Jerusalem. Uh, the city, and and I think the best way to imagine Jesus telling these, giving these warnings, is perhaps with tears in his eyes and a broken heart, 
is that these people whom he loves are facing off against destruction. And that tears him up. Because they won't be able to give up. They won't be able to give it up yeah, and they won't be able to come to him. Yeah. Having looked at God's grace, let's, uh, let's ask the question, like, what is he actually commanding us to do? And how can we today try and live by these commands that Jesus has asked us? These, these things that Jesus has asked us to do. So let's start off with this section where we're talking about Jesus loving your enemies. So in particular, the first thing uh, that Jesus is going to say, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And he's going to go on to state that in a whole bunch more ways. Loving your enemies is one of Jesus's most challenging teachings. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, and who is your neighbor? Even those who you, by all rights, should hate. It seems like the people around Jesus really struggled to deal with this this teaching of Jesus, what it meant for them to to love their enemies, actually how far they needed to go. Like Peter says, oh, how many times should I forgive my brother? Should I forgive him seven times? Or Where's the cutoff? You know? Yeah. Or the guy says, yeah, I mean, you said, yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. Mm. And I, I agree with that. But who is my neighbor? My good friend who lives next door, he's my neighbor. But what about the guy who's at the other end of the block? Like, is he my neighbor? And Jesus says, no, no, no. Your, your worst enemies should be your neighbor. Every fellow human being is made in the image of God. They're all your neighbors. Yeah. That's right. And uh, and he says that uh, the limit for forgiveness is how many times he w- um, your brother wants to be forgiven. Your brother mm. asks for forgiveness. Seven times. And that's, seven times. Yeah. So if they, if, they, if they come back with sincere will to be forgiven, then do it. I don't even know if that's Jesus' point. I actually think Jesus' point is forgive them whether or not. Yeah. They 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 repent and come before you. But then, if they don't, if they don't repent, no matter how much you want to forgive them, then ah, uh, that's yeah, it, that it, is it, an interesting it is, point. It is a two step process. I think yeah, there is a two step process, and I would call the first step where you personally forgive someone. I would call that forgiveness, and then the second step where you kind of restore that relationship a little bit. I would call that reconciliation. Yes, ah, uh, and so beautifully yeah, put. Jesus calls you to unconditionally forgive no matter what yes but reconciliation that might take some time and that it is ideal that you would be reconciled with your brother but if that doesn't happen that's okay but reconciliation also doesn't mean you have to immediately have everything resolved it just means that the repentance has been responded to with forgiveness or the forgiveness yeah has been responded to with opening up and repenting yeah and that that's um Back to unforgivable things. Uh, when when people reject Jesus altogether, they're not th- as much as Jesus want, or God wants to forgive them. They're not allowing themselves to reconcile. They're not. They're mm-hmm. not um, adding their repentance, their acceptance of their flaws to that two step process. I know for myself, I don't think I would kind of count up a huge number of enemies in my life. But there are certainly people in life that annoy me or or irritate me or bug me. And I I find it hard to love them sometimes. Uh, I know that like 
this is not this is not easy. What about you guys? Are there are there people in your life that you would call enemies, or is that a bridge too far? And and how do you respond to the people that you find difficult? I agree with your answer. I wouldn't necessarily say I have enemies, but there's people that annoy me or I dislike for maybe certain actions they do. For example, like a girl in my year is like cheated in like the last four tests, like very obviously. And then like she'll get her test mark back and like the whole class knows she cheated. But yet she's like, oh, I did so well. Like I'm really happy with my mark. And then she'll like even go a step further where she'll be like, how did you guys go? I'm like, ah, oh, like it just really annoys you. But how I approach it is like, gonna be really calm. Mm. It's it's so easy just to like lash out and not necessarily yell at them, but just to like be like, we all know you did this, but just uh, approach it with grace and calmness, I guess. Yeah. And if they talk to you, just be like, oh, like even go to the point and be like, oh, why did you do that? Like. And then if they get angry, you just got to either walk away or just leave it. That's how mm. I'd respond to that question. There is no one who I can't love and no one who I can't forgive. I have no enemies, except for Oliver. <laughs> except for Oliver. He's, he's, a, he's a pretty, he's a terrible person. Yeah. Forgiving Ollie terrible. is hard yeah. work. Yeah, he is unforgivable. Very hard. Mm. Um, so let's talk about exactly what Jesus says that we're supposed to do with our enemies. So the first thing he uses this this kind of like set of three things that he asks us to do is to do good, to bless our enemies and to pray for our enemies. And this is really challenging, or at least it was to me as I was kind of putting these notes together. Jesus is, he first talk, talks about doing good. And I think that's pretty obvious to your friend who might've cheated in the exam. Like that does not, Jesus is saying that doesn't give you a right to treat them poorly or to, to not treat them fairly. Uh, and actually Jesus is saying to do good by them, to actually invest effort in making their life better. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it's the same for me, for the people that annoy me and, and for, for Marcus in his relationship with Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it will never be reconciled. Never be reconciled. Never. But more than that, Jesus asks, Jesus asks us to bless the people that we hate. If doing good is something that we can we can do with our actions, no matter how we're feeling inside, to bless someone, that really reflects like a change of how we feel inside. Because to bless someone is something that you do just kind of privately in your own space, but it means that you really actually want good things to happen to them. It's like that um, two-step process like you were mentioning before. Yeah. It's one thing just to not like, I guess, get agitated by them but it's the next thing to pray for them or go talk to them like ask them how they're going yeah i, I think even here it's like it's even a, a three-step process where we start off by it with our actions doing good and then it moves deeper into how we think about that person in terms of blessing them and and wanting good for them in our in our head and then even further than that praying for them wanting good for them before god Come in before God and, and asking for good things for those who deal with us with contempt. If we're really going to do this, doing good, blessing people and praying for them, I can't imagine that there's a lot of room left in our heart to hate that person. There's just like, there's just no room left over. 
It's kind of all-encompassing. Well said. So, so once Jesus has, has called the people to do this, he then actually makes this a bit more concrete with some examples that would have been like pretty pertinent to the people around him. So he gives some examples about uh, about like turning the other cheek and and giving away like giving their possessions to them without uh, without asking. And these are things that like would have been happening to these people. These are examples of ways that these people could respond in love to the people that are hating him, hating them. What Jesus is doing here is he's fleshing out and giving examples and cases that make sense of how the people can do this for people around them. So this is slightly different to his first thing, which is like, do good, bless and pray. That's what we're supposed to do for our enemies now and forever. But these are some more specific examples and concrete ways that these people listening to Jesus can respond. But I want to be really clear about something. If you're in a situation where you're at risk of of injury or harm, Jesus is not speaking to you right now when he says when he says t- for you to turn the other cheek. Jesus is speaking to you when he says to bless and pray and to do good, but that does not mean necessarily that you stay in that situation where you're at risk of harm. If that's happening, Jesus would want you to get out and to move to somewhere safer and think about how you can do good and bless and pray for those people from that place. Why are we called to do this? This is what the Bible talks about when it talks about us being marked by our love. Jesus says it a number of times, like even the even the Gentiles do this, even the foreigners, even the sinners do this. Our response from love is what sets us apart from those around us. And that is so important for God's kingdom. Actually, that's, that's one of the marks that God's kingdom is, is here, is how we're responding to the people around us. Next up, we have Jesus talking about how we can correct one another. There's a big section where it's talking about, you know, like the speck in someone's eye and the log in your own eye. Mm, hypocrisy. Yeah, this is another parable of Jesus. It seems pretty clear what Jesus is doing here. If you're going to correct someone on something, you have to kind of deal with it yourself first. I think this story should do two things for us, two kind of important things. First of all, when, if, you're going, if you're going to someone and you're like, man, this person is struggling with something, like they're, they're dealing with some, some problem in their life, I need to like let them know that that's going on and, and like help them deal with that. I think we should stop and we should think, hey, how am I going with that first? And if, if we find that actually that's a problem for us as well, maybe we should take some time to deal with it between ourselves and God before coming to our neighbor and, and rebuking them. But the other thing it's doing is it's talking about who we actually allow to speak into our life and to teach us. So if we see someone else who's like, hey man, you got to stop doing this thing. Or you gotta, I, I need, you need to start doing this thing. This is what God wants for you. Stop and, and look at them and say, hey, like, what's going on in their life? Does their life actually reflect that they've been changed and shaped? Now, there's a really important caveat to this, which is that Jesus 
has a lot to say and Jesus does not have a log in his eye. So if we are trying to rebuke someone else, one of our, one of our friends on their behavior, and it's something that we're kind of struggling with a little bit as well, don't rebuke them with your own words. Let Jesus do the talking. Mm. Does that make sense? It's not like yes. you don't, it, it's not like it's not your place if you're struggling with that too. It's that you, it's that you take an external mm. way of communicating that problem to someone yeah. else. But, but even, even then, so, some people act like um, you, you can't correct someone else on something if you are, dis- you are struggling with that. But the fact that you're acknowledging that as a problem in the first place is usually a testament to you accepting the fact that you're struggling with it. Not yeah. always, but if someone is someone and saying, hey, don't do that, the, the implication is that they know that from experience. They know yeah. that you're making the mistake from experience. So it's not like you can say, aha, you can't tell me what to do because you, you also uh, did that. So, mm. But if you, if you accept that, then you've already taken the log out of your eye. To some extent. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, the, it, it varies from case to case. but Yeah. But at the same time, if someone comes to us and is like, hey, you need to fix and change this thing, and we're like, I, I don't know, you seem like you've got a pretty big log in your eye, that should be a pretty clear indication to you, hey, stop. Maybe you don't need to listen to what they're saying, but at least go and listen to what Jesus has to say. We have Very a perfect good and good teacher. Let Jesus teach you and shape you and mold you. last kind of main section of Jesus's teaching is kind of um, shaped around this metaphor of the good and the bad tree. This is a really challenging section of this passage. I don't know how you felt when Jesus was saying things like, there is no good tree that bears bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree that bears good fruit. It, It doesn't make me feel comfortable. It doesn't make me feel cozy and warm inside. In some senses, this is kind of like, uh, like afraid is not the right word, but this is, it's a bit of a scary passage. Yeah. H- how, how did you guys feel kind of hearing this last section with the strong foundations and the weak foundations and the good and the bad fruit? I think I would agree with your opinion. It definitely doesn't make you feel warm or cozy inside. It makes you feel mm. just a little bit uncomfortable. Not very chuffed. Kind of question it a little bit and stuff. So this metaphor of trees and fruit, it's, it's not a, a new metaphor that Jesus is innovating here on the spot. This is a, a metaphor that has been coming through the Bible for ages and ages and ages. Uh, and again, we're going to read from Isaiah. And in particular, this is how Isaiah uses this metaphor to talk about Jerusalem. So shall we have a read? This is from Isaiah chapter 5, starting from verse 1. Let me sing now for my beloved a song of my beloved about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also carved out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but produced only worthless ones. And now you inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, 
when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones. So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay its waste. It will not be pruned nor hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds not to rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are his delightful plant. So he waited for justice, but behold, there was bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Mm. This is such a powerful story. I, I am constantly uh, awestruck by this story. God's people are the plant, and the fruit that he's waiting for are justice and righteousness, but instead, his people are constantly producing bloodshed and a cry for help. And so this is the same metaphor that Jesus is picking up. So we, uh, we have the, f- the tree, which is, of course, God's people, then Israel, but now the church. And the fruit that they're producing, God is looking for, Jesus is looking for justice and for righteousness, for all these things that he's been talking about just before, for, for loving their enemies for, for listening to rebuke when it's, when it's well-founded. And what he's saying is that the good, good trees produce good fruit. They will produce this enemy love thing that he's been talking about. And bad trees, they're going to produce bad fruit. They're not going to produce these things that he's been talking about. They're going to produce other things. Uh, that might be bloodshed. That might be something else. What Isaiah is talking about is what happens to these bad trees is that the vineyard is destroyed and the bad trees are destroyed. Uh, That's what happens to Israel when they get sent out into exile. And Jesus is talking about the same thing. There's a judgment coming for these trees. It's kind of a bit terrifying. Understand this in light of how we need to kind of understand God's whole kingdom. When God is asking for this behavior from people, it's clearly pretty serious, right? God clearly cares a lot about this like loving your enemy thing. I think God also understands that there's an element of the now and the not yet to this. So just like in the same way when, when with miracles that we were talking about last week, sometimes we pray for miracles and sometimes they happen and that's wonderful. Sometimes we pray for miracles and they don't happen. Or sometimes we're living our life and God's kingdom is clearly all around us and we can see that the that the, the weak and the, the unexpected in society are, are loved and, and are welcomed in. But sometimes it's really not obvious that we're living in God's kingdom. And I think that it's kind of the same for this ethics stuff. Sometimes when we're living our life, we're going to be doing, we're going to be like doing this well. We're going to be producing the good fruit. But sometimes when we're living our life, uh, it's going to be really tough. And this, this good fruit, might be very, very hard to produce. Living in uh, the now, but not yet. So we've got the blessings of uh, God's grace all around us, but the full kingdom is still yet to come, Mm. where everyone, the people who don't have much included, will have full blessings. That's that's. That's what's really going on here at the end. I thought the Sabbath day was interesting. I mean, I've always known about it, but 
I think it's a really important time to reflect on your life and reflect on God and take a break. And I think we can definitely like apply that into our, our own lives. Obviously, it won't be a full day necessarily, but in your week or in your day, like find little like uh, pockets of time to reflect on um, what's happening and like your journey with God, I guess, and to mm. like make sure you're on track and you're not um, being consumed. Yeah with your own life, but always bring it back to God. That's yeah, my to main. remember his grace. Yes. I never knew about the parallel between the um, the Sabbath day and the liberation from Egypt. That's crazy. That's yet another typology that I'm going to have to add to my collection. Mm. When we looked at like loving your enemies, obviously the famous passage to love your neighbor as yourself. But yep. I think it's... Um, 17 verse 18. Thank you. He knows his stuff. <laughs> he does. I think it's always really important to, like, in your life when you do get annoyed by someone or you do have an enemy to love them and if you are having, like, troubles with someone to always bring it to God and he will sort it out. And also if something, like, in them you think they are doing wrong, like, check in with yourself and say, oh, have I had experience with that or am I doing that wrong right now, which we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. That was really important. I've really come to see Jesus as um, this guy who takes who, ta- who takes things that we think are pretty obvious with our um, earthly eyes, and then he'll invert it. He'll say he'll say something that seems like the complete opposite, or something that just doesn't make sense. All all the time, he said he'll say, you know, it's not that guy who gets into heaven; it's that guy, you know. And yeah. people are just like, what, like thousands of years of uh, theology and law, and this this man just comes comes along and knocks it off the table but it's crazy because because what he's doing at the same time is inverting it and adding another layer Mm. Mm. and fulfilling it as well and fulfilling it yeah it's so cool okay so the story from here jesus is going to leave this place and he's going to go into capernaum uh, to continue his ministry all of these these kind of uh lenses that we've been looking at through the last this episode and the two episodes before this one give us kind of a pretty complete range of, of, of lenses and glasses through which to see all of these bits of Jesus's central ministry. And then from here, next episode, we're going to be looking at uh, the king of the kingdom, looking through Jesus's, Jesus's crucifixion, his resurrection and his ascension into heaven um, and what they mean for the kingdom of God and who he is and all of that. Uh, but thank you to you guys. It's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you for having us. Very good. Thank you to everyone listening. It has been wonderful for you to join us. And uh, thank you once again, Marcus, for all the music. Uh, It sounds great. Yeah, Marcus. See you later, guys. And thank you, Ollie, for not being here.